When he stepped into the batter's box, the world narrowed to one single thing for Colton Lacombe. The ball in the pitcher's hand. Nothing but that. It had been that way since he was a kid in Lake Charles, Louisiana. He might have been a 21-year-old freshman now, trying to make a fresh start at LSU Eunice, the little community college in the heart of the Cajun Prairie. But in the batter's box, everything was as it always had been. Whether it was 12 years old with a wad of hubba bubba in his mouth, or 21 with a cheek full of sunflower seeds, the feeling was the same. Colton inside the chalked rectangle of the batter's box, ready to give the first good pitch he saw a ride. He had made some bad choices after high school, and those choices ultimately put him in the Calcasieu Parish Jail for three months and change. 111 days, to be exact. A symmetry that wasn't lost on the superstitious ball player. But hell, Colton was lucky to get off so easy. And even though he hadn't really played the game for a while, baseball was still his true north. It was the only thing that ever really made sense to Colton. Besides his mom, it was the only thing he truly loved. And so he was determined not to fuck this up. He had only been with the LSUE Bengals for a couple weeks. The season hadn't even officially started, which was good because Colton still had a lot to prove. LSU Eunice might have been an obscure little junior college to a lot of people, but the Bengals were actually a perennial contender at the national JUCO level. He was lucky to have earned a walk-on invitation, and luckier still that his speed and his skills hadn't abandoned him during those first two years of high school when he was acting like an idiot in dive bars and sketchy houses all around Lake Charles. Colton had always been a leadoff hitter. It was a critical job. In his first address to the team, something like 35 guys vying for just 20 slots, Coach had said, the leadoff man is the spark, and looked dead at Colton. In his mind, Coach was throwing down the gauntlet, saying something like, all right, ex-con, let's see what you got. It was hard to know how much Coach or anyone knew about him, but Colton had long since decided to keep the door to his past shut. It was a leadoff hitter's job to get on base by any means necessary, to crack the door open, and Colton had always been good at it, even as a kid. A contact hitter with good wheels, more often than not, Colton's name ended up at the top of the lineup card, but nothing was going to come easy for him at LSUE. On the website and in the little glossy booklet that they actually sent him care of the Calcasieu Parish Jail, they called the field at LSU Eunice Bengal Stadium. But that was a stretch. It was a damn fine ballpark, to be sure, but not even LSU had the gumption to call their place Alex Box Stadium. It might have been overreach, but it was still the nicest ballpark Colton had ever set foot on. You wouldn't know you were at a little community college in South Louisiana, that's for sure. The perfect green carpet of the grass, flags waving beyond the center field fence, the fine pebbles of the warning track, electronic scoreboard and sunken dugouts. It was big time shit. A field that coach said rivaled any minor league park in the country. And Colton didn't doubt it. 
there had always been a special magic to the ball field for him. Even as a kid, Colton had always felt something like a sense of awe, or maybe possibility was the right word, when he looked out onto a game-ready field. The start of a game held a particular electric, almost preordained kind of promise for him. There was the power of potential in that first pitch. It was the point when everything kicked into motion, like the opening scene of an action movie. Baseball is a game of rallies, of swelling momentum that perpetuates itself, becomes contagious. And as a leadoff hitter, Colton took great pride in being the one to unleash that torrent of kinetic power. The Little League fields around Lake Charles, where he had played his baseball growing up, didn't look anything like Bengal Park, which really was a field of dreams. But the feeling was exactly the same. It was a sensation only sharpened by his incarceration. The outfield fence of his youth was lined with bright advertisements stenciled on four by eight sheets of plywood that were bolted to the hurricane fence. It gave the park a real big league feel. And on game days, when an army of dads in blue jeans and work boots prepped the field, cutting grass, dragging a harrow behind somebody's four-wheeler on the dirt infield, and chalking the lines, it turned the ordinary field into something special. Or maybe he just noticed that kind of stuff to distract him from the shame he felt that his own dad wasn't out there working on the field. By the time Colton was earning praise from teammates and parents for the way he carried his team, his old man was long gone. Things kind of sucked for Colton and his mom, but on the baseball field, he was king. In South Louisiana, even at 12 years old, a real ball player like Colton got respect. However complicated things were at school or with the other kids in the neighborhood, baseball had a way of making all that shit go away. He had developed his ability to block everything out when he was at the plate because a lot of times nobody from his family was in the stands cheering for him. So everything but the gleaming white ball in the pitcher's hand dropped away, and then hitting was easy. Most leadoff hitters worked the count, but Colton didn't do that. He always swung at the first pitch he could handle, which meant a lot of times he ended up cracking the first pitch of the game into the outfield and, more often than not, stretching it into a double. One of those plywood signs lining the Little League fence was for Popeyes. If you hit a home run over it, you got a gift certificate for a free bucket of chicken. It was always a big deal when a hitter marched proudly over to the official scorekeeper's table where Miss Sandy sat with her pencil and her scorebook behind the plate. Everyone watched as she wrote out a note for the player to take to the concession stand where they kept their certificates that somebody important had to sign. The second year of Little League, Colton had managed to hit just one home run on a hanging curveball from Randy Broussard, but it went right over the Popeye sign. The chicken him and his mom had that night had never tasted so good. Sitting there in the molded plastic and bright lights of the restaurant after the game, grass stains on his pants and a thick white ring of dried sweat on his hat, Colton had felt like a man. His mom was so proud of him. But he didn't get his invitation to walk on at LSUE for his power. In fact, that Popeye's home run was the only long ball Colton ever hit in a game. 
By the time he was 17, he had plenty of power to put the ball over the fence. And in batting practice, when the coaches put every lazy pitch right in his wheelhouse, he could drop them over the left field fence pretty much on command. But as good as that felt, the real rush for Colton was scanning the outfield for gaps and slapping a base hit in the hole. That was the shit that charged him up. Before he got into trouble the first time, his on-base percentage hovered around 420. He was only a high school junior, not even 17 years old, but by then the scouts from as far as Mississippi and Texas had started to show up. His grades were perpetually in the toilet, so they pretty much all represented JUCO schools, but still, Colton never dared to dream big. All he wanted was a chance to keep playing, anywhere. Some part of him understood that without baseball, life would look like a hurricane brewing in the Gulf. The storm wouldn't even have to hit you to fuck things up. Colton was a total package on the field, just as reliable ranging in the outfield as he was at the plate. Whether it was center, left, or even right field, which he actually liked to play because it gave him a chance to catch guys lollygagging at first base. Colton had a way of getting to balls that everybody else in the ballpark had given up on. He made catches you weren't supposed to make. A lot of players around Lake Charles had big dreams about making it to the pros. By the time he was 16, Colton had already dialed his expectations back, but he still ended up on the all-star team with rich kids with visions of the show in their eyes. It was hard not to notice the differences between them. Colton never understood what was it about being well-off that made kids better baseball players, but the reality was right there to see. It would usually be him and one other kid from school, a redhead dude with a tough-looking dad that everybody called Pepper. The rest were kids from the private schools. They tended to have $500 gloves and a new bat every year, plus their own personal helmets with their names stenciled on the side and baseball bags full of fancy stuff like weighted practice balls and little parachutes you tied your bat to to increase bat speed. Even wristbands. Colton's most vivid memory of his first Pony League All-Star practice, when he was something like 14, was how the whole infield had shown up to the first practice with matching wristbands. Most of those next-level players, the top two or three players from each team in the City League, talked about next year a lot. It was always about the great stuff they would do next year. Colton had never liked to think about the future. All he wanted was to play the game because it was the best feeling in the world. To get a jump on the ball right from the hitter's bat and track it into foul territory or into the gap and feel it land in the pocket of your outstretched glove, that was the shit. Playing the game was where the magic was. It wasn't next year. It was now. He had picked a general studies major at LSUE because that's what four of the other six incoming freshmen had done. They all joked in the group chat that they were majoring in baseball, and they were right. There was only one reason why a ball player moved to Eunice, a town barely big enough to support both a McDonald's and a Burger King. Eunice was only 50 miles from Lake Charles, right in the middle of what they called the Cajun Prairie which was another way of saying the middle of nowhere, as far as Colton was concerned. If it wasn't for LSUE and the Liberty Theater, 
the sort of grand old Opry for Cajun music, most people would never hear of Eunice. It sat 20 miles north of I-10, surrounded by soybean and rice fields that the farmers flooded for crawfish during the cool months. If you drove along the back roads of Acadiana, you'd see the circular tops of crawfish traps, a 10-inch circumference of PVC pipe, sitting in meandering rows in the water, which was only about a foot deep, but enough to reflect the sky above, so that sometimes you couldn't tell where the horizon ended and the sky began. It was pretty, but it was boring. Pretty boring. Colton wasn't one to look for signs, but it was hard to see the day he met Tina as just a coincidence because of the song thing. It was sometime during that first week of practice when he was still in the habit of getting to the field an hour early, even though that meant walking 20 minutes from his apartment instead of waiting to ride with his roommates. But he liked to have some time alone to just stare out at the field, which was exactly what he was doing when someone behind him said, what you want for your song? He looked back to see an older man in a purple Bengals hat sitting high in his head, the way older Cajun dudes wear them, just standing there, waiting for an answer. They hadn't been introduced, but Colton had seen him hanging around the field. He had been in Eunice a couple days at that point, barely long enough to settle into his room in the apartment he would share with a couple of juniors, a lanky pitcher from Laplace that everyone called Snick, and the second-string shortstop, a dude named Clint. Coach said he put Colton with the older players because if he was rooming with the freshmen, they would ask him to buy beer. Everything was still strange for Colton. It was only the second time he had lived under a different roof than his mom, the first being his three-month bit in the Calcasieu Parish Jail. It took him a second to remember about the songs. The other freshmen were all excited about it, sending Spotify links back and forth and going on about how the girls in the stands might respond as they walked out to the batter's box. Colton hadn't even bothered to listen to any of the tracks. Just based on the names alone, he knew he wouldn't like any of it. His taste ran more towards the guitar rock his mom was always blasting in the car or on the big-ass, old-school speakers they moved from apartment to apartment when Colton was growing up. Yeah, I'm not for sure, he said eventually. The old dude had just stood there, waiting, in no hurry at all. When he didn't respond, Colton asked, Is there, like, a list or something I can pick from? Colton was just piecing it together that the man ran the press box. He just shook his head and laughed. Nah, bruh. To tell you the truth, most of these guys, their song is pretty much the first thing they want to talk about. It drives Coach nuts. So, I'm earning points then, Colton had asked. The man's face went frosty, and when he looked away, Colton had the feeling that his trouble with the law wasn't a secret anymore. Well, I wouldn't go that far, the man said, and just drifted away. Colton did a few laps along the fence line, his mind on the small imperfections and contours of the warning track, and didn't think much more about it. Before long, the assistant coaches and players started trickling in, and then practice started. He forgot all about the walkout song, but that night Snick drove him and Clint to a bar in town called Cecil's, and that's when everything changed. 
The only part of Eunice Colton had seen at that point was the Sonic on the main drag and the little convenience store near campus, which was isolated on the edge of town. Eunice looked like a sleepy, kind of depressed little town to Colton. There was just one main drag with the usual stuff on it, a Winn-Dixie, a dollar store, and a big Walmart right at the city limits at the east end of Highway 190 that ran right through town. Lake Charles was like New York City compared to Eunice, which was fine by Colton because he was there to play baseball, not to be fucking around. His mom had been living in Houston the past year or so, but she was trying to get the cash together to move closer to Colton. They talked about getting an apartment together, an idea Colton secretly longed for. He wasn't so sure he was ready to be on his own. There were a few trucks and a shitty Toyota Corolla parked at odd angles in the gravel parking lot of Cecil's. The bar didn't look like much, just a wide cinder block building with the name painted on the side. It was right across from Ace Auto, a parts house with an old Honda three-wheeler suspended from a chain way up in the air. Colton could tell it was a rowdy place before they even got inside. And when the smell of the place, beer, cigarettes, and bleach, first hit him, an instinct he should have listened to told him he was in trouble. He told himself he would have left right away if he had a car, but then he saw Tina behind the bar. Clinton made a big show when they walked in, throwing his hands up and calling, play ball, like he owned the place. Colton was supposed to be the rookie among them, but he might have been the only one with some sense. He knew from experience that kind of entrance was a good way to get your nose broke in a place like this. She had dark, full hair like you'd see in a shampoo commercial, and later on, Colton would come to love the way it fell across his face when she was on top of him, narrating her pleasure in intense whispers. But in that first moment, there was nothing but cold appraisal in her look. Her eyes burned through Clint, skipped past Snick, and settled on Colton. She was drinking him in, and all of a sudden, Colton was thirsty. Apparently, they had live music at Cecil's on Saturday nights. That old-school Cajun stuff where it sounded like somebody had the singer's nuts in a vice. But it was a weeknight, so it was pretty quiet. They found a place at the bar, a little dance floor with a tiny bandstand behind them, and Tina ignored them for a while. Snick said the dude that owned the place was a sight to see. People called him Tietzi or Tietzi or some shit like that. Colton never quite understood what it was. And he tended to dress like a 90s rapper called Heavy D. Colton didn't have a clue what Snick was talking about, but when a middle-aged, heavy-set dude in a tracksuit walked in the bar and went right to the cash register. He figured he was looking at TC in the ample flesh. He put Colton on edge right away. The next day, they had their first big team meeting with Coach, and when one of the assistants started passing out a list of off-limits places in town, Colton had a sinking feeling before he even saw Cecil's listed in the number two spot. The number one place was apparently some kind of private strip club called the Trailer Park. But by then, Colton already had Tina's number in his phone. He could almost hear himself pleading his case. She just grabbed my phone off the bar, coach. Which was true. 
He had just answered a text from his mom and set the phone down on the bar when she reached over and grabbed it up. She had been coy with him over the course of two Bud Lights while Snick and Clint played darts, but all of a sudden she was punching in her number. He was a little surprised he'd have the gumption to say, Can I add your picture? But he was glad he did. A lot of things seemed to come together in that exact moment. Just as she tossed her hair to one side and gave him a look that might have melted the brass rail, a funky song came on the jukebox. It was an old song, the bass line giving him an instant but vague and probably false memory of his parents dancing in some distant living room. When I get off of this mountain, the singer went, you know where I want to go. He had that high country whine to his voice that Colton didn't ordinarily like. Straight down the Mississippi River to the Gulf of Mexico. The way Tina looked at him when he snapped the picture was an invitation to possibility, and he damn sure wasn't thinking about baseball in that moment. After he took the picture, she had leaned over to whisper in his ear, no cell phones in the bar. Except she didn't just say it. She breathed it, and his dick pretty much stood at attention instantly. When he heard the next lines of the song, it was like it was speaking to him. To Lake Charles, Louisiana, a little Bessing girl I once knew. She told me just to come on by if there was anything she could do. It was something like 3 a.m. when he laid in bed, still damp from the shower and the animated memory of Tina in his mind and on his hand, when he remembered enough of the lyrics to look up the song. He fell asleep listening to Up on Cripple Creek on a loop. The band's name was The Band. Colton couldn't decide if that was brilliant or the stupidest thing he'd ever heard. They had a scrimmage the next day after their big meeting with Coach, Starters against the B team, coach called them. If Colton was still looking for something concrete to hang his motivation on, that was it. No way he was going to be relegated to the B team. That association alone was enough to fire him up. But with the image of Tina somewhere in his mind providing the tinder, he was a five-alarm fire, just maxed out on confidence. Three words bubbled up into his mind. Not for long. In his first couple days in Eunice, he'd been feeling nothing so much as an overwhelming sense of gratitude just for the second chance to play. But he was settled in now, and he damn sure wasn't going to be content to just ride the pine. Ex-con or not, Colton was ready to show what he could do to take his rightful spot at the top of the lineup. He knew all he had was this one chance, and it wouldn't last forever. He had the feeling that Coach was secretly pulling for him, but that would only go so far. It was nothing promised and nothing given. All he had was a chance. He was already primed for battle when he stepped towards the plate for the B team at the top of the first inning. But when the old dude in the press box played about five seconds of Up on Cripple Creek, testing out the song Colton had told him he wanted, it was like an on switch. Colton didn't ordinarily like that high whine the singer had. Not that different from the old Cajun music, actually. But there was something between the lines being said. The way LaVon Helm sang, From Lake Charles, Louisiana, pronouncing it in that country way, 
Colton latched on, identified with the character. It was somehow defiant, like, I'm here, and you damn sure better be ready. He didn't know the pitcher, a big-eared dude that was supposedly going to Mississippi State next year. But after the first pitch, Colton knew the score. The pitcher threw a high note of chin music, a cutter running high and inside to lay claim to the inside part of the plate. Fair, but damn sure not friendly. A couple of the other B-team guys in the dugout made a low sound to voice their displeasure. Colton appreciated that. B-team or not, those were his people in the dugout and he wasn't going to let them down. He guessed that big country on the mound would come back with another one, trying to paint the inside corner. So Colton took his time getting back in the box, setting up just a hair further off the plate. A sharp catcher would notice that kind of thing. The fastball was right where he expected, and Colton connected so sweetly he was worried the ball would actually clear the fence. Worried because a long ball wasn't what he wanted. He needed it to show his speed, to release the swell of energy he was feeling. The ball hit in the middle of the padded wall and left with a thud of a sucker punch to the gut. He was already cruising into second base when the left fielder tried and failed to barehand the ball cleanly, and so Colton turned on the power, accelerating for a couple strides. He wanted to show he had another gear. The throw into third wasn't even close. Colton pulling in, standing up, and his B-team brothers banging on the ceiling of the dugout. And then he thought of Tina. He went two for two at the plate in the four innings of the scrimmage they played, the B-team putting up six runs to the starters three. In right field, Colton robbed the cleanup hitter of a double and on another play almost caught the left fielder, who he already had pegged as the weakest of the starting outfielders, sleeping after a weak single to right. The only reason Colton didn't get the force at first was because the first baseman was sleeping too. But it didn't matter. He had already done more than enough. After the scrimmage, all coach said was, Way to be, Lacombe, because that's all he had to say. He didn't want to meet Tina at the bar, but she said she couldn't leave, and he could not imagine not seeing her. So he promised to buy rounds with money he didn't have if Snick drove them there. Colton and Tina ended up kissing and grinding against each other in the dark alcove that led to the bathrooms, her leg riding up against him while he caressed her neck with the tip of his nose, breathing her in. That's all it took for Colton to fall under her spell. Tina was different. At least that's how it felt in those first few electric weeks when every aspect of his life took on a static charge. He was living in a sustained rush of euphoria that felt endless. He was the only freshman that dressed out for their first game against Alexandria. Colton didn't get into the game, but a few days later, when they played Monroe College up at their place in the northern part of the state, he pinch hit in the seventh inning, driving in the tying run on second base and staying in right to finish out the game. He was at the top of the lineup card for the next game. Just something like five weeks after joining the team, Colton made his first start. Tina worked a lot, and so he ended up at Cecil's way more than he wanted to. And even though it was getting to be pretty much an open secret on the team, Colton wasn't too concerned. He couldn't be, because everything just felt right. 
Snick started just giving him the keys, and Colton stopped to put a few bucks of gas on his way back to the apartment. Sometimes Tina showed up after she closed and they stayed in his room, making noise deep into the night. Some of the guys might have been jealous, but nobody was worried because the team was on a tear. And no baseball player on earth will fuck with a winning streak. There was something special about Tina. She was deeper than other girls he had known. Freer, too. It was total sexual abandon in bed like a drug. It was as if their encounters happened in a dream state. Colton almost couldn't believe it was real, the way they connected. It wasn't love. It was a kind of parallel dimension, an altogether different kind of experience. There was just no comparison to the other girls Colton had been with. None of his other girlfriends or one-night stands had ever quite surrendered to the experience the way Tina did. At some point early on, Colton got introduced to little Cecil. Tina called him T.C. Everybody did, but Colton just couldn't do it. His perspective was a person could decide to call themselves whatever dumb name they wanted, but when the rest of the world started entertaining their nonsense, it wasn't good for anybody. And anyway, it wasn't like Colton was planning to make friends with a dude. The way Tina talked, he was an asshole of a boss which wasn't a surprise to Colton. All he needed was one look at the dude to size him up. Flat brim hat, sole patch, and an extra large Atlanta Braves jersey. Colton figured the guy was either stupid or dangerous. If he had any money, he would have bet on the first. Tina told a story about T.C. trying to rub up against her one slow Sunday afternoon at the bar, as if that was evidence of his assholery. But Colton knew better than that. The way Tina strutted around behind the bar, it was a miracle the whole damn town of Eunice wasn't sniffing around Cecil's every day. Colton wasn't in a position to judge another man for something like that. If you had a pair hanging between your legs, you noticed Tina. It was that simple. But Colton didn't really give a fuck about some bar owner in town. All he cared about was baseball, Tina and helping his mom get settled in. She could be a real bitch to Colton sometimes, but she was his mom and all they had was each other. So when she told him she found a job in Lafayette, barely 45 minutes from Eunice, he was stoked. His life was like a come-from-behind rally all of a sudden, everything breaking his way. Hell, even his classes were fun. He was taking freshman comp, which seemed stupid and hard at first, but it turned out that Tina was a good writer. She brought him a nice little notebook one day and wrote out lewd examples of the kinds of sentences they were learning in class. His penis, engorged and throbbing, slid into place. A perfect, a positive phrase. She fed her nipple into his mouth, her hips bucking against the length of him inside her. Damn, that girl was good. Everybody on the team had started calling him Colt 45. And so now at home games, when Up on Cripple Creek came on, people in the stands would start firing off imaginary pistols, and the guys in the dugout would yell shit like, Lock and load! His name and his face were in the game day program. Everything was just clicking. 
And so when Tina called in from the bar to say she was about ready to quit Cecil's, to maybe go back to school or at least get a job at the casino in Kinder, it felt like icing on the cake. His mind flashed to an image of Tina sitting with her long legs crossed in his English class, and he felt a powerful stir in his groin. He asked if there was anything he could do to help. Actually, yeah, she said. Just the way she breathed into the phone was enough to make him hard. Do you think you could borrow Snick's car? She asked. He didn't ask why. He just told her yes. Good, she said. I just have to go to Beaumont and pick something up. Then Tietzee says he'll cash me out, free and clear. <laughs>